Hello, and welcome to Social Design Insights, the show that brings you the leading voices of the social design movement from the fields of architecture, engineering, planning, art, and whomever else we can find that's out there trying to make the world a better place. I'm your host, Eric Kessel. We've got a great show for you today, and I hope you were able to check out some of last week's show with Alyssa Walker. She had some powerful and inspiring ideas on transportation and the city and and how to make action in your own travels and your own communities. But this week we're joined by another remarkable guest. Uh, Jerome Harris is a teaching fellow at the Maryland Institute College of Art, and he's put together an incredible exhibit of African Americans in the history of graphic design. Longtime listeners of the show know that I have a special fondness for designers who started out as questioning students. And Jerome will tell the story a lot better than I will. But basically, he started out trying to research African-American graphic designers while he was pursuing his MFA at Yale. And he ran up against a dearth of resources. Few scholarly resources had ever really been devoted to this history. And one could read about the whole history of graphic design and not come across any African-Americans. I know I certainly did. Jerome dug in, however, and started pursuing a passion project that would take him into several archives across the U.S. and eventually resulted in an exhibition, As Not For, Dethroning Our Absolutes, wherein he chronicles the history of African-American graphic design in four modules, parties and protests, advertising and commerce, black data and musicality. You'll shortly hear about it, but the exhibit and the research is ongoing, and later in the episode, we'll hear about future locations for the exhibit, I'll be making my own plans and would advise you to do the same. If the exhibition comes to your city, find a way to get there. But in the meantime, let's join the show and get caught up on this important piece of research and exhibition. Jerome, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Jerome, I was just telling the listeners, I came across this exhibit late last year called As Not For, Dethroning Our Absolute. And it really punched me in the gut in a rare way because... It forced me to confront not only my lack of knowledge about African-Americans in graphic design, but my lack of concern. You know, I had never actually stopped and wondered why all the books that I had read, you know, had names like Edward Tufte and Saul Bass and Lasitsky, but there was this whole narrative missing. This has been, you know, the project that you've undertaken in the last couple of years. Do you think you could take us back to the, the kind of earliest ideas of how you got started on this subject? What was, what was the spark that really got it going? When I was in grad school, we were required to do a uh, history project on a graphic designer of our choice. I had known about Buddy Esquire, who was a hip-hop party flyer designer during the rise of hip-hop in the Bronx during the late 70s and 80s. I mean, in my head, he he wasn't, nobody knew who he was, um, but he was a graphic designer to me because um, I used to design party flyers when I, I lived in New York. Uh, for a couple of years, and that was kind of how I paid the rent for a while. I designed uh, four by six glossy UV coated party flyers, <laughs> really tacky, kind <laughs> of a mimicking a pen and pixel kind of collage kind of style on the artwork. And I was like, so this would be a cool like connection. So in the <laughs> in my <laughs> effort to do research on this man, there was nothing. Right, there were a couple like uh, blog spots. His name might come up in like these really badly designed hip hop, you know, hip hop head websites that people were just trying to preserve the history, but didn't really know how to code the website. And then there was one woman who went to Cornell, Amanda Lalonde. I might be saying her name wrong, but she wrote a scholarly article about Buddy, and it was on Academia.edu, and that was like my primary source. And just for context, I mean, Buddy Esquire was not just 
a flyer designer. He was like the flyer designer, right? I mean, he was kind of synonymous with the rise of, of hip hop in the Bronx. Well, that's uh, is that is that an <laughs> overstatement? <laughs> but no, 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 no. I, I mean, I'm also learning stuff too. I recently interviewed Phase Two, who was another flyer designer who I also feature in As Not For, and um, he was telling me that he had kind of innovated a lot of the things that Buddy was doing, and then Buddy kind of came up behind him. Phase Two just didn't get as much notoriety, nor did he want it. It was just something that he enjoyed doing. And um, he was good at, but he wasn't a flyer designer. He just felt a, there was a need for promotion for the jams and the parties that were going on. Um, and he started doing it. And he also said that he wasn't the first. There were like, you know, disco flyers before that and other things being promoted. But he kind of innovated that kind of the framing device and the collage kind of um, styling, kind of reminiscent of like Ramari Bearden. Okay, so you undertake this project in school. There's yep. uh, this this great dearth of you know resources and writing on Buddy and and you know that area of graphic design generally. What came next? I, fin- I graduated from uh, with my MFA in 2016, and um, I started working a corporate job. And um, I was slowly, I was still kind of digging in the crates. Like I found. Um, the Cornell University has a hip hop archive, so I was looking through their kind of party fl- They have a archive of hundreds of party flyers. Johan Kugelberg was like, I think in the in the Bronx, he was called the ATM man because he would go to people's houses with cash and say, "Hey, do you have party flyers?" and just hand them a wad of cash for boxes of like old party flyers and brought them up to Cornell and archived them. Yeah, and I'm I'm happy he did that. I like sent him an Instagram message like, "Thanks for doing this." That's where I started with that archive. But I think I just became frustrated just without resources to do research, one. And then two, that I couldn't find anybody, else, any other black graphic designers. There was no breadcrumbs, no no nothing. So I started um, a fellowship at MICA after I left my last job, um, teaching fellowship in graphic design. So I had a little more resources. I can get like faculty grants for research. And so literally like googling black graphic designers <laughs> black advertising agencies i found little breadcrumbs so i started out with um leroy winbush who was a he had a ad agency in chicago and i saw that his work was archived at university of illinois chicago campus so i ended up going to chicago and stumbling upon three other black graphic designers who also owned advertising agencies in chicago and then there was also uh, Sylvia Abernathy, who I found out about, who designed uh, jazz album covers for Sun Ra. And I kept, it was just like this rolling out of uh, ideas. So then I'm thinking, oh, okay, music. So like, what, you know, what can I look at in music? So then thinking about the mixtape covers that Pen and Pixel made, those aren't necessarily black graphic designers, but, you know, Baby and Birdman and uh, Master P and DJ Screw and kind of all these black, you know, icons in hip hop were art directing these uh, this album art. So you have like uh, one that I really like and people really like in the show is a Snoop Dogg. Uh, I think Master P produced the album, but it's like Snoop Dogg and then like Rottweilers and a mansion in the back and like bling text, kind of the whole like pen and pixel aesthetic. But for me, that's like definitely something that even though the designers weren't black, it was uh, necessary to show something that was made and art directed by hip hop artists, you know, in the black community. So I felt like in my curatorial statement, I could put a little caveat that these might not have 
been designed by black people, but they were art directed by them. If you read the uh, Afropunk article uh, that I wrote at the bottom, Sean Burke, the uh, owner of Pen and Pixel, he actually had a negative comment to say, like saying, you know, we we weren't black. He's a white man. He's like, we weren't black. We never made it a racial thing. It was never about that. And I was like, you must not have read the article. (laughs) (laughs) So I like respectfully responded and just let him know, like, I'm actually bigging you up for making something that make an aesthetic that is still visible in the black community today based on the art direction of these uh, black designers. But so, yeah, so that I, I made the exhibition. I'm sorry, I'm rambling now. Started doing the research, got to a point where I felt like I wanted uh, to make something tangible. Well, I was required to make something tangible for the fellowship. So I was going to make a book at first, and then um, I kind of decided to make it a show. Instead, I had never curated a show before. It was just like a, I was just like, Let's, let me just go for it. Put my research together, came up with a very graphic design method of showing the show, which is on posters. Each piece in the show acts as a kind of a, I don't know what to call it, like a page in a book in a way. I cite my sources at the bottom, and each piece is numbered according to the artist. So it's almost like a Dewey Decimal System exhibition of black graphic design. In a could you walk us through physically, like, what is this exhibit? Every instance is a page in a book. Is it separated thematically? Is it historical? What can the audience expect to see when they get a chance to visit this? The show is broken up, and not in every instance is broken up this way, but um, broken up into four categories. So there's um, advertising and commerce, which is kind of um, work made for uh, advertisements or promoting, like, a commercial entity. There's party and protest, which are just more um, group gatherings for entertainment or for activism. There's one section called musicality, which is all just music, jazz album records by Sylvia Abernathy. I also included some poetry that was typeset by Sun Ra. So I'm kind of pushing it there, but whatever. And then uh, I have the pen and pixel working there as well. And then the fourth is called Black Data, and that has W.B. Du Bois's infographics about the condition of African-Americans that he showed at the Paris Exposition in 1900. Wow. So this exclusion has been going on for quite a while, then. Uh, I mean, I I mean, nobody's been looking, not even black people. Like, it's not even like a, (laughs) I don't think people even knew. And it's funny because I, when I, when I started getting more and more into design history, it's, it's what what we learn and what we perceive as design is just uh, kind of a bastardized version now of like modernist graphic design from the mid 20th century. So clean, sans serif, minimalist, you know, flat design on a grid kind of sums up what we think of, what most people think of and what is taught in schools that graphic design is when it is all these other things that, you know, have a, have a distinct voice and methods and theories that should be also taught celebrated and displayed as as much as minimal (laughs) and serif stuff you know one of the the questions that your exhibit provoked in my mind is you know how do i know what i'm reading is real you know and you know as a a professor of of architecture you know i assign readings to my students and you know it's made me question like okay what narratives are being left out of the reading that i'm assigning what narratives were excluded from my own education and, and these sorts of things how do we as a collective, as the design community, let's call it, 
do better. I mean, uh, you know, in your case, it comes down to one frustrated student, you know, having to, to go on the road and dig through archives and things like that. Is that what it comes down to? I mean, is there are there ways to, to formalize a better, more inclusive dialogue? Uh, white people have to want to do the work <laughs> because the, honestly, the, if the United States is made up of mostly white people, they have the biggest influence on the largest population. If they're not doing the work, you know what I mean. You can't. It's it just it's the same thing with like diversity inclusion initiatives and organizations and et cetera, et cetera. It's like uh, it can't be a thing that's tacked on. It has to be embedded within the culture of the country and then of organizations and companies and et cetera, et cetera. So like if everybody's not doing it, if just the people of color are responsible for doing the work, for getting frustrated and then doing this research and be like, blah, here's a show. It's, I, no progress is going to be made. Like it's it's it just it's just embedded into the the fabric of the United States. White people have to do something. <laughs> um, but that's that's one part of it. The other part of it is publications on design companies. You know what I mean? I understand that like uh, modernist graphic design is the is kind of the aesthetic of commerce. You know, so uh, you can't really avoid that. To sell people things, you need to. You, it needs to look a certain way, but um, there's so much other graphic design that that goes out that looks like that, and is just think that thinks that is this is that's the only thing that graphic design is, and it doesn't have to be that. Just that awareness that there are all these other ways to see things. Like there's a there's a um, a student at uh, Micah right now. He's a uh, Asian, and he's doing kind of an Asian kind of symposium and bringing in people from all, all different areas of Asia to come talk about their experience in graphic design. And I'm, I'm blanking on his name right now, but um, yeah, he's at Micah. He's a grad student. And I, I, you know, I gave, I had, I had to send him his props. I was like, thanks for doing that. You know what I mean? Like it, it's, and, but also it's, it's the same thing. It's like, yo, it's not his responsibility. It shouldn't be his responsibility. <laughs> you know, he feels excluded. He, he's like, I want to see me too. I sent, um, there's um, Marcos Key, a design studio out of Brooklyn, um, and YL is one of the um, design leads, and I have an Arabic student, so I sent her, because he does a lot of Arabic typography, so I sent her, you know, his website and was like, you should look at this, because I see you're trying to do stuff, but it kind of looks like the stuff that you're learning in class. Look at this, you know? <laughs> it does take, like, connecting the webs, but it, everybody has to be on the same team. And, you know, there's clearly reasons why uh, a lot of non-white uh, people are not on the team, but <laughs> some, not all, but yeah. You are listening to Social Design Insights with Eric Kessel. We hope you're enjoying these thoughts from Jerome Harris about the history of African-American graphic design, but we're going to take a quick break. While we're breaking, check us out on social media where you can find out more about Jerome, this amazing exhibit, as not for dethroning our absolutes, as well as updates on all of our past guests and their work. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Social Design Insights and on Twitter at Social Design IM. When we get back, we're going to be talking about what comes next and find out where this exhibit will be headed and the next steps in Jerome's ongoing project. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with more Social Design Insights after the break.
Welcome back to Social Design Insights with Eric Kessel. We've been speaking with Jerome Harris of MICA about the origins of this remarkable project. Coming up, we're going to drill down and talk about how we begin to see our own blind spots in the world of design. Let's rejoin the conversation already underway. This is kind of a selfish question and just, you know, teacher to teacher. Like, um, is that part of why you made the switch to teaching from practice is, you know, being better able to influence those sorts of things? No, that was not at all. It was just, uh, I, I think it was just more anti or anti corporate, anti bureaucratic or, or that, I'm sorry, that flavor of bureaucracy. I didn't, <laughs> I couldn't do it. <laughs> It was it was a space that uh, that that promoted mediocrity at and praised compliance, and I was not into that. I was like, I'm really good at this job, but I am not going to sit here and talk about walking my dog all day. And so, <laughs> teaching is um, it, it for me. I, I like it for a lot of reasons. My my students do get a kick out of my personality and my interests, but then I think they also see that they can be themselves in their work. I get some uh, fire under my ass for <laughs> making the uh, promoting that sometimes. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, just do your like, do what you do. Look at, and I show them, uh, I show them a wide spectrum of things. I show them punk scenes, feminist scenes from the '80s and '90s, and, I, and then we'll look at like Joseph Mueller Brockman posters. Then we'll look at some Paul Rand. We'll look at the IBM logo, and I'll, I'll show them everything. I'll show in in my motion class. I I show Saul Bass every you know. So best every time I teach this section of the class, but then I also show like hip hop music videos. I show Missy Elliott. You know what I mean? It's like I ha- like it's it's motion. It's still it's valid in the context of studying how to make a compelling moving image. So for the audience, I mean, you mentioned motion class. What is that? So motion design. Um, it's just uh, moving images. So just like uh, for graphic designers, but just using um, typography and image to achieve the same effects as a poster in a way. So just over time, how can you communicate a certain set of information? How do you make that compelling? And then how do you convey a mood or how do you convey a whole a set of information in a short burst? So in my class, we usually do things like we do a set of animated GIFs, um, usually for the first month of class, just to just to teach like uh, practical skills. And we do animated horror movie posters. So I make them oh, choose wow. like a 90s horror movie and they do um, animated posters of those. And then um, we do an infographic. So we watch a lot of the Atlantic, uh, New York Times, Vox. We watch those like explainer videos and they choose a topic that they feel strongly about and make a video. And then um, the last project is up to them. We just do one-on-ones. They essentially have like the experimental, the the kind of formal and um, uh, kind of at least some kind of a mastery of typography of motion that they're capable of, you know, doing some, doing kind of an individual um, expression of something. Like one of my students, Connie, she did a really cool project on Charles Manson's, but Charles Manson as a Netflix series. So she did a opening title sequence, which was beautiful. <laughs> she, I was like, oh my God. <laughs> I was like, this could really, I would watch, if I've seen this, I would watch this. <laughs> I want to see this, man. I'm curious. I can show it to you. <laughs> Jerome, um, back to the exhibit. Yeah. Can you talk to us about the, the title of the exhibit, As Not For? What does that mean? Yeah, I know it's a little cryptic. I got really deep in my research and then later on was like, uh, maybe I should have made this a little more direct. <laughs> it's a mashup of several um, pieces of Alan Locke's The New Negro. 
So the text is really dense. So some of it I had to reread a couple of times, might have went over my head, but some of it was really compelling. As Not For is not a direct quote, it's like a long passage and basically it talks about writers and poets writing as Negroes, but not for a population. So it's like black people expressing themselves as black people in the way that they do it, however that it however that uh, presents itself. And then, but four is kind of like being an upstanding kind of palatable black person. So it's like, yeah, there is no need to, uh, perform your blackness, just be black the way that you're going to be black. And then, um, dethroning our absolutes is from another part of the text. That's a direct quote. And that's exactly, I mean, it's, it, it, it is what it is. It's just kind of like, it's what the exi- exhibition aims to do, which is to challenge design education, design history, kind of like saying, like, get get the, get, the, get out of here, modernism, move over to something new, you know? Well, it, it already feels like it's doing that um, and, <laughs> and certainly has the potential to do. No, I'm serious. Um, you know, I, I think it's, it's such a powerful, not only exhibit, but message as well that, you know, there are all these undiscovered narratives and we collectively, you know, have to care about that. You know, I mean, we shouldn't just kind of accept what's in the book. So thank you for that. And, and you know, it has me kind of wondering, like, what's next? You know, I heard that the exhibit was going to be traveling, you know, as I was reading about it. I was really hoping that it would become a book or a monograph or something. Where do you plan to, to take this research? Um, I have a couple of things on my calendar. Like next week, I'm speaking at Stevenson University about the show. The show is currently at VCU. Oh, no, I think it's coming down today. Today's the last day at VCU. It's going to City Tech. I'm going to City Tech to install this week. It opens up on the 19th until March 29th, and then it's going to be at RISD April 11 to 21. And then um, I'm in talks with University of Washington in Seattle, as well as an organization called Blackbird in LA. I just wanted to get around first. I'm also not done researching, and I feel like it it might not ever be done. So... (laughs) Yeah, I just I'm just uh, gonna keep going. I would like a book. Like people have been asking for a catalog, and I'm like, but I'm not done. Like I just you know, there's there's two new artists like that I, that I didn't include who I've I, I I overlooked. And like Greg Alden is a well known black graphic designer. Who um, has kind of a sad story. I don't know how I forgot about including his work. And then there's um, Donald Cruz, um, and he was another black graphic designer who I also didn't include and I'm still like <laughs> stumbling upon more as I go. So, um, so no book. <laughs> I'm just really excited for the book. I'm going to do uh, it. I, I am making a small book, maybe like 40 pages or less that I'm that I'll post it. That'll be for sale uh, maybe in a couple months, but that'll be closer to the exhibition guide that I give out at the shows. This is like a small, like a uh, 40 page book with bios of all of the artists included and kind of a list of all of the archives that I went to and uh, got the work from. So it'll just be kind of a resource guide for people to maybe uh, start their own uh, research journey. And then the, the book, 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 I don't know. I, I don't even know. <laughs> I don't, I've never done that. So I don't, I gotta figure out how to get a publishing deal and then, Maybe I then I'd really need a team. I could I I could do it by myself, but I'd really just need people to uh, help keep me straight. Because like teaching alone is is really intense. 
and then I and then I also teach dance, and then I'm doing this exhibition, and um, I'm writing, and it's just a lot. It's such rich territory, you know. I mean, once you sort of open the idea that you know this narrative has been erased or left out, there's so many places to go. There's there's so much work to be done. Yeah, I agree. Something has been that has been really impactful for me is encountering black designers in the world like who just email me randomly <laughs> we're like oh my gosh <laughs> i've never had these thoughts like <laughs> how can i help you i want it like it's just like uh validating in a way and these are people who are like this uh, this young woman at osberg college i think isn't it? uh she emailed me and she was like i've been doing research on black graphic designers too and i was like oh well let's talk so we had like a two-hour phone conversation just like running our mouths and just kind of sharing resources and it was, it was just the coolest thing ever and there's another dude um we read one of my i think my afropunk article when i talk about how i started out designing party flyers he was like you know i got the you know he's, he said he started the same way and like he had a lot of trouble trying to get a graphic design job because he was showing that work at interviews and people thought he couldn't design but like let's say you know the pen and pixel aesthetic was normal right was considered graphic design well maybe it would have been valued and he could have been hired by you know what i mean so that it's like the industry's blind spots that um make them look over talent because to be completely honest like party flyer designers are, are photoshop masters at the end of the day like you learn how to be resourceful and learn the tools that you need to do to make these like really compelling compositions that's been the, for me the most rewarding part to see that just like designers in the world are responding to it. Even people in Baltimore, black designers in Baltimore are just like, damn, like I want to do this. <laughs> well, I think that's always the hallmark of a great exhibition is that it creates a community, right? Yeah. I mean, it sort of draws out a conversation and uh, you know, I wanted to get you on the show because I wanted to, to do what I could to, to amplify that, that conversation. So thank you so much for your time um, and your expertise and um, bringing this to, to the design community's attention and all the work that you do. Yeah. Thank you so much. I appreciate, I'm flattered. <laughs> I didn't expect any attention from the show. I, it was completely selfish. I was like, I just want to do this. Uh, this is for me. I, I just want to feel validated and the work that I make and be able to uh, give receipts as to why I do things. <laughs> you know, Jerome, we, we, this is our 105th interview. Um, oh, and there's, there's, there's certain trends that like pop out um, and we interview all over the world. And a lot of it is just people who, you know, saw a condition in the world and got frustrated and said, why hasn't anybody done this before? And then they just went out and did that thing, you know? And it's like, um, that's how we move forward. That's how we heal the world. So, yeah, man, I'm a fan. Thank you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Social Design Insights with Eric Kessel. I'd like to thank my guest of the week, Jerome Harris, for his insights into the history of graphic design and how certain narratives are constructed or excluded, and more importantly, how they can be deconstructed and subsequently rebuilt. To learn more about Jerome and his work, please visit our website at currystonefoundation.org. There, you'll find links to this exhibit, As Not For, Dethroning Our Absolutes, and some helpful links to further your research. We'll try and keep you up to date on the travels of the exhibition, and if it comes to a city near you, drop what you're doing and make time to check it out. If you have any feedback on the show, ideas for guests, or just want to chat, you can write to me at eric at socialdesigninsights.com. That's E-R-I-C at socialdesigninsights.com. 
Join us next week. We're going to be headed down to Texas, which we try and get to once in a while. And we'll be speaking with Aaron Seward, editor of Texas Architect magazine, about criticality and accountability in the world of design journalism. Social Design Insights is produced by Baruch Seichner. And at the break, we're listening to Soul Science Lab. Check out their song Paradise off their album Plan for Paradise. Social Design Insights is an initiative of the Curry Stone Foundation. We post regular updates on social media, and you can find us there on Instagram and Facebook at Social Design Insights, and on Twitter at Social Design IN for all the latest news in social impact design. 